Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in just three days last June, the Supreme Court radically changed the country. It eliminated Americans' 50-year-old constitutional right to an abortion and weakened popular gun laws. That's according to NYU's Michael Waldman, who says the court is poised to do so again as it weighs in on affirmative action, voting, and other national issues this term. Waldman joins us to talk about the political forces that empower the court's hard right wing and why he thinks the court is heading toward a catastrophic loss of institutional legitimacy. Waldman's new book is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. It has been one year since Dobbs when the Supreme Court took away Americans' constitutional right to an abortion, a decision that a majority of Americans disapprove of and one that's had profoundly negative effects on tens of millions of people. The decision was a product of the court's six-member right-wing majority, which is the subject of Michael Waldman's new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Michael Waldman is the president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School and a former member of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. He joins me now to talk about the history of the court and what it tells us about where we are today, including the court's conservative supermajority and how it's amassed its power, even as rulings run counter to public opinion, and why he thinks a backlash could be coming. Welcome, Michael Waldman. It's great to be with you. Well, it's awesome to have you here with us. And your book really goes deep into the history of the Supreme Court, which I want to jump into in just a moment. But I'm curious, given that, you know, this weekend was the one year anniversary of the decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Would we be having this conversation right now if not for that decision? Uh, that decision was a landmark in so many ways. It was the goal toward which the conservative legal movement had been driving for decades. Uh, and it was one of the most significant ways in which this supermajority of the Supreme Court engaged in what I regard and what I call a power grab. Yeah. Um, it's significant both in what it did in revoking a fundamental constitutional right protected in the federal constitution for the first time, something people had relied on, something women had relied on for half a century. But more than that, the way they did it, Mm. the kind of originalism they claimed to use, and then the backlash that we've been having ever since 
which is which is helping to reshape politics all across the country. Yeah. So maybe maybe it would have taken a little longer for this book to be authored if <laughs> that decision hadn't come a year ago. Um, well, I do want to go back because I, I think that we have a sense in this day and age of the court's role uh, within government and, and, and politically that doesn't always fit with sort of how things have happened over the hundreds of years our country's been around. So can we just talk about what did the founders imagine in terms of the role and power of the court? I know you note in the book that there's only about, I think, 377 words dedicated to the judicial branch in the Constitution and not a ton of detail in terms of their power over Congress and legislation specifically. Yeah, it was one tenth the length of the space given to Congress and the presidency, which they thought were going to be the big, powerful branches in government. Um, it the role the Supreme Court had, where in some ways it's not just a co-equal branch, but over the other branches, developed over time, um, and uh, it, it, they understood there was a need for judicial review. But the degree of um, aggressiveness with which the Supreme Court now takes its role would have surprised them. Uh, what's interesting, and this book focuses mostly, uh, as you say, on the really explosive rulings from last June um, that were so significant in moving the country to the right. But th there's a history on all this, which gives us a little bit of perspective. Most of the time, it turns out, in the country's history, the Supreme Court reflects whatever the political consensus is of the time. It sort of hugs the middle. But a few times, the court has been unduly uh, overreaching, uh, unduly ideological, unduly partisan, or activist. And when that happens, there's a significant backlash. It's a cycle of overreach and backlash. The first time really came in 1857 with the Dred Scott ruling. Mm -hmm. That was only the second time the Supreme Court declared a law of Congress unconstitutional. That was the ruling that People may remember from, you know, high school history. Yeah. I had to <laughs> look it back else. up to get the details, though. <laughs> Feel um, free to remind it, us. <laughs> you know, but it, it was a big deal at the time. Um, it, 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 the court, you know, there was a lot of agitation over slavery, um, rising opposition to it. The Supreme Court said they're going to solve the problem, by which they mean, by which they meant solve the problem of people agitating about it. And um, they ruled that slavery was national, that it could not be restricted by Congress from the territories and even even more so that black people were so inferior that they could not be citizens. And the reaction was so explosive. It led to the rise of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. It led to the rise of the Republican Party um, in so many ways. Therefore, it led to the Civil War and even the end of slavery. Um, and uh, it, it, it was just a convulsive political response. And and it's part of this pattern that these things are not limited to kind of courtrooms or learned articles, but become part of what people respond to in their everyday lives. And it, it happened again, two, I would say, two other times in the country's history before now. Yeah. And I mean, talk about that a little bit more, maybe in the context of, I mean, the court really was out front on issues of race um, even after the Civil War, they went on to repeatedly undermine the 14th Amendment, right? So I think we have a sense that the court, you know, that, that as 
the sort of cliche, they call balls and strikes, um, that they should be a representation sort of broadly of where we're at, or maybe a little bit ahead of it. But but really, I mean, they have a history of protecting powerful people and corporations. Um, the era of the Warren Court, which we'll get to, was very different. I mean, I'm thinking about in the early 20th century, the Lochner era. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, you're right that the, the court gutted the 14th Amendment and the other um, Reconstruction Amendments that were aiming to uh, introduce a, a multiracial democracy even then. Unfortunately, I think they were not really out front on that. I think they were reflecting white, yes. <laughs> um, the white voters all around the country at that point. The, the era you refer to, the Lochner era, is another era, I think, sort of similar to a time like we're in right now. I mean, there's so many things about it that were familiar. Uh, you know, massive inequality, uh, significant demographic change, this was the Gilded Age, the rise of the trusts, um, and and what the S Supreme Court justices of that time thought, the, the Alitos of that era, thought their job was to stop government from being able to do much about it, to uh, to prevent government from being able to regulate, to protect women or workers or public safety. I mean, this is um, the first time this corporations are people and have free speech comes up, right? That's and, not... Not, right. not a product just of the 20th century. <laughs> no, and 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 it and and they said the, the, it's known as the Lochner era because of a particularly notorious case um, dealing with uh, bakery workers, where where there was a state law in New York that tried to limit the hours worked in a day for bakery workers to 10 hours a day. And the Supreme Court said, "Oh no, that violates freedom of contract. That violates the freedom of the workers to." sell their labor and be exploited in that way, basically. Um, and again, this was hugely controversial. There was a huge pushback. It became part of the politics of the time. I had not realized um, until researching the book that uh, Theodore Roosevelt, in his, in his fabled 1912 presidential campaign, this was kind of this this very epic campaign where he was running as a third party progressive candidate against his handpicked successor, William Howard Taft, and who was the Republican. And then Woodrow Wilson was the Democrat, and there was a fourth candidate, Eugene Debs, the socialist. I mean, they don't have election like this anymore. <laughs> no, we don't. And and uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's big issue was the Supreme Court. And taking them on and these rulings, which he thought were were extreme and reactionary. Now, he had some kind of wacky ideas. I think he, he he thought there should be a ballot initiative where you could overturn the Supreme Court on constitutional issues. Um, but this was this was the big issue in that campaign. And and this fight continued all the way up to the 1930s. Uh, I think a lot of folks probably are familiar a little bit more with his cousin, Franklin mm -hmm. Roosevelt. Um, and his fights with the Supreme Court, you know, during the New Deal, the country was in a deep crisis. There was one third unemployed. Um, and the Supreme Court was very uh, opposed to the New Deal. It was they were called the nine old men. Um, they struck down much of the first New Deal and then were getting ready to go after Social Security and the labor laws. And this, of course, was when FDR proposed expanding the court. It was called the court packing plan. And uh, it was a huge fight. Uh, and, and, and Roosevelt lost, even though he had the biggest electoral majority ever up until that point and 70 percent of the Senate in his party, he still lost. Um, but the court backed down 
and actually stepped back from striking down economic regulation in 1937. Uh, and so that was another period of overreach and backlash. And then in the book, I talk about what I think is a third period, which is a little more complex for someone like me. I'm a progressive. I run the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. It's named after Justice William Brennan, the great liberal justice of that mm -hmm. time. I think the Warren Court and the years after that uh, did extraordinarily important things. They were, it was the only time the court was ahead of the country. Um, it started with Brown v. Board of Education, you know, which was so necessary to break mm -hmm. the hold that white supremacy had in the South and, and formally, legally end segregation in schools um, and so many other rulings. But those rulings came fast and furious, and they were increasingly untethered from sort of the legal reasoning. And, it, and in any case, it, um, it created and provoked a backlash, a social counter-revolution in a sense – that we're still living with to this day. Well, that's a great, um, we're going to have to take a break in a second, Michael, and I think that is a great uh, point to stop at because you're really making the point that, yeah, the court has faced backlash when it has either been behind civil rights, when we're talking about workers, uh, women's rights, civil rights for um, people of color, or in the Warren court's case, maybe a little ahead of the civil rights. Um so we are talking about the Supreme Court and how its six-member conservative majority amassed the power it has and looking at whether and to what extent the court is facing a crisis of legitimacy as it issues decisions like Dobbs that are out of step with popular opinion. We're here with Michael Waldman. He's president of the Brennan Center for Justice at the uh, NYU School of Law. His new book is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. And we would like to hear from you. Do you have faith in the Supreme Court as an institution? If not, what would it need, what would need to happen for to regain your trust? Or would you like to see the Supreme Court reformed? Should it be expanded, subjected to an ethical code, or maybe have term limits? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Uh, you can also email us your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. We'll be back in just a minute. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law and author of the new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. So, Michael, we were talking about the history here um, and, you know, the political backlash that we've seen over the decades. And we got up to the Warren Court of the 60s and 70s. And you know, since 1970, the court has had a Republican-appointed majority. Um, I think the last chief justice appointed by a Democrat was in 1946. But it's not just that, right? I mean, there's been a real concerted effort on the right to capture the court, essentially. Um, I'm talking in specific about the Federalist Society. Tell us a little bit about that, you know, the genesis of that and kind of where it's gotten us. You're right that there's a sort of a, a striking structural fact that um, Democrats, one party, has won the popular vote for president in seven of the last eight presidential elections, which is, by the way, the longest winning streak in American history for one party. And the other party has appointed six of the nine justices. Um, but it goes well beyond that. The, the, the court has been captured by a faction of a faction, by a very well-organized and ideological political operation. Um, as you say, the Federalist Society, it started out as a student club, um, but has grown into this very well-oiled and, as it turns out, very well-funded political machine. They groom people to be judges and justices. They spend tens of millions of dollars uh, through affiliated organizations on ads backing their candidacy or uh, or, or weighing in, they uh, fund organizations uh, again through through the people who are behind the Federalist Society. They fund organizations to file the briefs to go before the judges that they themselves have put on. The the de facto leader of the Federalist Society, uh, uh, a man named Leonard Leo. Um, provided Donald Trump the names of the people who he would choose among for Supreme Court justice. Trump was not a social conservative. He had always called himself pro-choice, uh, hard to believe, um, in order to curry favor with and win the support of traditional conservatives. He, he said, I'm going to do exactly what you want on the courts. And so that, as you know, um, the, the most uh, norm-shattering thing that happened in this uh, among other things, was when uh, Justice Antonin Scalia died right. and Barack Obama made an appointment a year ahead of the election, um, a, a year ahead of the, the uh, turnover in power. Um, and the Senate, under Mitch McConnell, simply refused to even consider the Merrick Garland nomination. A lot of Democrats regard that as a, as a stolen seat. Um, yeah, but, 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 even, this... but even beyond that, it's not just one seat. It's this whole operation. So we have a question from a listener. Noel tweets, Leonard Leo's right-wing federal society organized for years to recruit law students who became judges and positioned themselves into Supreme Court nominations. Why is there no organized society on the left? The founding fathers did not see a determined group organizing this way. Well, it is an unusual thing, and it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around. This is a country that, that has always been kind of obsessed with conspiracy theories, whether it was the, the Masons or QAnon or whatever. And here's this thing happening in, in plain sight. Um, uh, you know, there are uh, organizations like the American Constitution Society, which is uh, law students and professors uh, who are progressive. Um, there's certainly active active engagement among progressives and liberals on courts issues. And what the people from the Federalist Society will tell you is, hey, look, you know, law schools 
are pretty progressive, pretty left-wing places, and they need to do something like this to counterbalance. But there's not really anything close to like this. Yeah. And we see this in these ethics scandals that are now helping to tarnish the reputation and image of the court. Um, in the last few months, we've learned through journalism by ProPublica and other publications, first, that Clarence Thomas um, has had his lifestyle subsidized by a right-wing billionaire, not just paying for jet travel that he didn't disclose, um, but buying Justice Thomas's mother's house and doing the renovations on the house with her in it, not disclosing it, paying for his surrogate son's education. I mean, this is this was in some state legislative capital somewhere. We would call it corruption. Yeah. And then we found the same uh, something similar recently with Alito, where um, a different right wing billionaire paid for different travel uh, for him, and in that case, then went before the Supreme Court with numerous cases, uh, and, and Alito never st stepped aside, never accused himself. And the common thread in both of these things is this guy, Leonard Leo, who sort of fixes up these justices with these right-wing billionaires. It's, he's sort of like a resettlement agency. And <laughs> well, and, and I think it's important, too, because, I mean, you mentioned the Merrick Garland appointment, attempted appointment. Um, and, you know, we've we mentioned Dobbs, but I think a lot of I think on the left, there's a sense that a lot of this started only in the last decade or that this is just about abortion. But when you look at, I mean, Leo and, and the billionaire, the different billionaire benefactors, um, this is about, I mean, a lot, a much more broad swath of legal questions than just abortion rights, correct? Yes, absolutely. And when you look at the last three major cases on the last three days of last term ending in june 2022 it's really striking i i i describe it as cramming decades of social change into three days so the dobbs case of course uh which ended uh the federal constitutional protection for abortion overturned not just roe v wade but but casey which was the later case that reinforced and reaffirmed uh, support for abortion rights in the Constitution, but also did it in a way that under, undermines, potentially undermines privacy rights in a whole bunch of different areas. But the day before that was, and, and it took decades of organizing by conservatives to get to this point. The day before that was a case called Bruin, mm -hmm. uh, which it got less attention, you know, partly because it came the day before Dobbs, which is having a huge, huge impact it is. Uh, it was by far the most sweeping Second Amendment case in the country's history. Um, it said it struck down New York's law, uh, longstanding law prohibiting the carrying of weapons. Um, but more than that, it said that you could not, in effect, consider public safety when assessing whether there's an individual right uh, under the Second Amendment and whether whether a gun law is constitutional. But only quote history and tradition, which which means quite literally the way the court has said it, you need to find an analogous gun law from the 1700s, and if you don't have that analogy, you're out of luck. And this was it, this is going to have and is con already having co massive impact on longstanding public safety and gun laws around the country. Yeah. Um, and and then the third day was a case called West Virginia versus EPA, which was 
a significant blow to regulatory agencies being able to protect the environment, in that case, climate change. So, you know, that's not just abortion, but if you if you think about it, guns, abortion, and the interests of the fossil fuel industry, yeah. sort of sounds like a political caucus rather than a, a jurisprudential right. uh, faculty meeting. And they rely on this originalism argument. But as we mentioned at the top, I mean, the Constitution's largely almost silent on many details of sort of what the powers of the court should be. I just wonder, like, is that intellectually honest? I mean, it feels like reading your book and hearing you talk that this is a political, these are political decisions, not, you know, ones based on a sort of uh, subjective reading of the text. Um, and I know, obviously, you're coming from the left. So, you know, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But like, how, how do you think about that argument, the originalism versus the way these decisions are actually being kind of considered and written? I mean, I, I think originalism, at least as it's being done by this court, is a flag of convenience. Uh, they, they're originalist because it's conservative. Not that They're not conservative because it's originalist. Um, it, it's important to know that th- uh, up until very recently, this is not how we as a country or the Supreme Court um, interpreted the Constitution, how decisions were made. It was always important to understand how the country had changed, how the country had evolved, uh, what the impact of rulings were going to be. What originalism, as they frame it, says, they ruled that the, quote, the meaning of the Constitution is fixed and that the only legitimate way to understand the Constitution is to ask what it meant to the people at the time it was ratified. And that quite literally means the social views in most instances, of property-owning white men from the late 1700s, um, a time, of course, when women could not vote, when Black people were enslaved, and so on and so on. It's a frankly reactionary project. Um, And again, it's just not how it's an, to me, it's an absurd way to run a modern country, but it's also just not how we've ever done it before. In addition, the idea that you can just get the history right and it's going to automatically tell you the answer is itself kind of uh, intellectually unsupportable, I I think, and that we're always arguing about history and what it right. means. <laughs> and, the, and the framers... Um, the framers certainly didn't intend for it to be interpreted this way. So right there, you got that problem. But also, they argued among themselves. They changed their minds. They, they you know, the right. Federal- That's what struck me about your accounting of, you know, the Constitution, you know, through the amendments, which is like there wasn't one feeling among the founders. I mean, they were often in conflict about the roles of all the branches of government and kind of what that should look like. They fought duels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. We are getting a lot of comments from listeners about this question of court reform. I want to read a few and have you respond. Uh, Jeff writes, I believe there used to be one judge for every circuit court. At one point, there were nine circuit courts and each had a justice to supervise it. Now there are 13. 13 justices would not be court packing but historical correction. Also term limits, I say 18 years. And Eileen tweets, there should be term limits and age limits. Uh, Another listener says, my fifth great grandfather was John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. 
I don't believe here the founders would have been happy with a partisan group like the Federalist Society having so much sway over one third of the government. I think we should expand the court. The Constitution does not say there should be nine justices and there should be more to reflect the population that we now have, maybe 12. And finally, Bruce wants to know, could President Biden appoint four more justices to the Supreme Court now while there is a Democratic majority in the Senate? Or does Congress first have to pass a law expanding the number of justices on SCOTUS? Uh, Michael Waldman, maybe answer that and then talk a little bit. I know you've said the term limit seems like the most sort of politically and um, just practically reasonable reform. I, I think that's right. But certainly props to John Jay for <laughs> having never <laughs> had John Jay, you know, uh, a, a blurb on the book before. Um, uh, so <laughs> it, it, it's true that the Constitution doesn't set the size of the court. It is entirely legal for Congress to expand or shrink for that matter the size of the supreme court it's happened before um you know when they had circuits literally it meant they galloped around on a horse going to do going to hear cases in these circuits so i don't know that the the fact that we have 13 circuits Mm. itself is such a compelling argument for for any particular size on the court um what what i've been encouraging people to really look at is term limits Uh, an 18-year term um, coupled, I think, with uh, with a, a, the ability of a president to make a nomination every two years, I think if you if you had that, you would really bring the court much more in line with the country. It would bring uh, it, it would bring a lot of accountability to the court. It's based on the premise that nobody should have that much public power for too long. Right. Sort of the, the the notion that George Washington. Um, reflected when he limited himself, for example, to two terms as president. Um, it's, it's an interesting, every state Supreme Court, but one has either term limits or an age limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so do the constitutional courts of other countries. And what's interesting is it's actually really popular and it's popular across the political spectrum. It's popular with conservatives and progressives john roberts has called for it in the past i don't know if he still would call for it um i i was a member of um a commission i was appointed by president biden to be a member of a presidential commission on the supreme court in 2021 and it was interesting you know these these commissions they they're often created to kind of deflect (laughs) calls for action on something and we were actually instructed at the beginning not to reach conclusions <laughs> um and 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 we didn't you know finally a government agency that works as as uh, as, as it intended should. Yeah. Well, yeah having said that it was really interesting we heard from dozens of public witnesses from left and right um some were for court expansion others were against it some were for an ethics code others were against it over and over again they said oh but I'm for term limits, of course. Interesting. It, it, there's a really interesting nascent coalition now, um, consent and consensus. Now, I'm not under illusions that like. This yeah, I don't think on. Mitch McConnell yeah. and Kevin McCarthy yeah. are gonna. Yeah, support that. Would last, but you know, it could be done for sure by constitutional amendment. We at the Brennan Center believe it could be done by statute also. Interesting. Um, and so I think it's an idea whose time has come, and I think there's a lot of uh, momentum for it. We are talking with Michael Waldman about his new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Um, And I want to bring in a caller, Yvette in Berkeley. Go ahead. Hi. I've long heard um, 
conservatives rail against activist judges um, imposing their progressive beliefs on their decisions. So I wonder how the current court (laughs) defends their uh, obviously activist (laughs) decisions. Thanks, Eva. I mean, I guess they don't have to defend them. They just make them. But (laughs) absolutely. I think that's the real answer. You don't hear them say that quite as much as they used to. I mean, what what they – these days you'll hear the court say things like, well, in the past, we cared about the public's response to our rulings. That was crass. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. Mm. Um, it, 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 you're 100% correct that for many years, conservatives decried what they called activist liberal judges imposing their own political views. Um, but as they've gotten closer to really having a grip on power in the judicial branch, you hear that less and less. And this this court is quite, quite activist. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing, though, in that both the liberals and the conservatives have not quite sorted out their views on this. There's, there, uh, On the one hand, in that gun case, in, in the Bruin case, um, there the, the, the conservatives put at risk or struck down hundreds of gun laws passed by legislatures all over the country for, for decades and centuries even saying, well, we're just upholding this constitutional right. Um, and, and, and again, what I think is a very extreme way to do it. And, and, and the dissent, the liberals said, no, no, this is better done by the legislative branches and the democratically accountable officials. Then the next day was Dobbs. And in that one, Alito and the others said, oh, we're just passing this back to the states. We're not uh, we, we're not taking a position on abortion here. We're just t- passing it back to the states. Um, and, and it was the dissent who, who said, you know, this is a right that needs to be protected in the Constitution. One, it, it's true the conservatives for a long time um, decried judicial activism. And now the cat has their tongue a little bit. Yeah. But I think there's also a long lost progressive and liberal tradition of understanding the virtue of judicial restraint. Um, for much of the country's history, what, what progressives wanted was judicial restraint. They understood that the courts of their time were not going to be the saviors and that they were, above all else, trying to stop the voters and the people from from um, shaping their society through their elected officials. Um, and I think it's important that those who support uh those kinds of values now understand we need to fall out of love with the Supreme Court. We're not, we shouldn't be pining for six liberal Alitos. Yeah. And that uh, the, the best thing the court can do in a lot of ways is get out of the way. All right. That is Michael Waldman. We're talking with him today. He's president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School and just wrote a book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. We are talking about the Supreme Court, how its six-member conservative majority amassed the power it has, and what is ahead. We'll be talking about some decisions we're expecting this week in just a minute. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Stick with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. In for Mina Kim this week, we are talking about the Supreme Court with Michael Waldman. His new book is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. We want to hear from you. Do you have any questions about important cases the court is considering right now? Affirmative action, gay rights, student loans? Or are you a lawyer or judge? Do you have concerns or questions about the different standards for lower court judges in the Supreme Court? You can email us at forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum or give us a call now, 866-733-6786. So, Michael, let's talk about some uh, current cases. And I actually have a listener comment that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's awesome to hear a progressive scholar say the Warren Court was an overreach. I'm an attorney and a progressive, and I'm convinced that when the court acts too far out of step with the people in our democracy, it's destabilizing to our form of governance. When the court moves too far away from the will of the people, it's authoritarian and undemocratic. These fights were meant to be had in Congress, not in the judicial branch. That is the exact sentiment you were just expressing, right? That liberals shouldn't count on the courts, that it the the you know, the the fight for rights and, and laws needs to happen in legislatures. Um, given that, I mean, what are you watching this week as we end this term? I know um, there's a, a couple of different big cases that are on the docket. So we already had one really big case uh, a couple of weeks ago that was a big surprise. Um, you know, one of ways in which this court, even before the supermajority, but under John Roberts, has been very activist, very aggressive, is on the law of democracy. And again, this is where the court has been activist and interventionist, um, striking down a century of campaign finance laws in Citizens United. And then a decade ago, in the Shelby County case, beginning a real assault on the Voting Rights Act, uh, the, the landmark civil rights law that was in some ways the most effective civil rights law we have. Um, there was a piece of the Voting Rights Act that was still intact uh, called Section 2, and in particular how it has been used to protect effective representation for black communities and minority communities around the country and redistricting and things like that. And everybody was expecting in a case uh, called Allen v. Milligan that the court would finish the job of wrecking the Voting Rights Act. And instead, John Roberts, joined by Kavanaugh and the three liberals, wrote an opinion saying, no, no, this still stands. It actually struck down a gerrymander in Alabama that had been unfair to black voters. It's going to lead to redrawing of maps in a number of states across the country. Um, 
and as I say, anybody who tells you they weren't surprised, it was do you think quite... that's Roberts reacting to public opinion? I mean, because the Voting Rights Act, you've talked about that kind of being one of his pet peeves. Like he has, uh, you know, on a personal level, I think had a lot of issues with it. This is his hobby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he literally the provision being discussed was something he as a young lawyer in the Justice Department in the 1980s crusaded against. Um, look, I think Roberts does care about and certainly does understand the credibility of the court as at issue and public support for the court has plunged to the lowest level ever recorded in polls the backlash has been fierce and has affected elections has affected control of congress and other things like that but i still couldn't really fully explain it but to be perfectly honest uh they only did the right thing they they left the law standing it wasn't some big sweeping new you know right being created they just chose not to tear down this this pillar but but i'm we're all great and pleased. What, what we've got coming up in the next few days are a number of really big rulings. Um, listeners probably are familiar with, with affirmative action and the fact that uh, the court is likely to say that uh, the use of race as a factor in higher education admissions is unconstitutional. Um, you know, f this follows on uh, of course, what's gone on in California over many years, but this would be nationwide. Um, we are expecting them to rule also on uh, whether the student loan moratorium that the Biden administration did um, is going to be allowed to stand. There's an important LGBTQ uh, rights case where uh, what you're seeing is in many instances, religious freedom, or in this case, the First Amendment is being potentially being used to poke holes in human rights law. This is whether a, a website designer um, can refuse to to uh, design a, a website for Didn't a same-sex. did we already sex. have that case out of Colorado in a wedding cake <laughs> That was a wedding. That was the wedding cakes, and then so then this one is about websites, and it's actually interesting because you could make you could see the argument that well, a website really is more like expression, you know, than selling cakes. Mm, so it's kind of an extension so it's, it's of that. Kind of a, it's a it's a complex case, but we'll see what happens with this. And then the case that I'm watching very avidly with greater and greater nervousness um, as each day goes by, it's a case called Moore versus Harper. Um, former conservative, former federal judge Michael Ludig says it's the most important case for American democracy in two centuries. Um, and the, it claims that the Constitution gave state legislatures the power to set federal election rules with no checks and balances from state constitutions or courts or governors signing and vetoing bills or even voters. Uh, it's it's a crackpot idea, and that nobody noticed it until now. Right? Um, they they call it the independent state legislature theory. It, the theory is very generous. It's a crackpot idea with no basis in history or how any states actually do anything. But at least four of the justices thought it was a good enough idea to hear the case. Now on this one, I actually think the arguments went really well, uh, but the the case itself that that it's all based on may be moot because the North Carolina legislature had done a big gerrymander. And then originally the state Supreme Court had blocked it, but then a new bunch of justices on that court said, oh, actually, it's just fine. So the Supreme Court may say, well, we're not going to really rule on this case, but they make make clear, I hope they will make clear that this crackpot idea should not be brought back to them. 
uh, again. But this could be absolutely devastating to American democracy if it goes badly. So that one is maybe a bit of a sleeper case. That's what's keeping me up at night. <laughs> All right. I have a call I want uh, to bring in here. Ellie from Los Gatos, go ahead. Hi. I, I have a question yeah. regarding uh, Chief Justice Thomas. If he's doing all of this rigmarole with planes flying, accepting gifts and so on, why isn't he thrown off the court? Thank you. Good question. Uh, Michael, this gets to the bigger ethics thing and the fact that there's nobody really overseeing the justices. You're uh, you're totally right. Um, You know, uh, the Supreme Court is the only court in the United States that has no binding ethics code. All the other federal courts do, all the state courts do, too. And it sort of should be fairly clear why that that's not such a good idea. Nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. And they basically say, trust us. Um, we, we've got this under control. But but we learned that, you know, Clarence Thomas was accepting all this largesse at the calling it the most polite word I can come up with from Harlan Crow, who's a, a right-wing billionaire. Um, for a time, he disclosed it. Then two decades ago, the Los Angeles Times wrote an article about it. And so he just stopped disclosing it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, Thomas really just shows the, the, the arrogance of power, uh, that he just doesn't really worry that anything is going to be done to hold him accountable. But, on but you know what? Like the rest of the court hasn't spoken out. I mean, really, we talk about the split, but it's only in dissents and court cases. It's not as if you see the like Justice Sotomayor coming out and saying, you're right, this is this is messed up. Yeah, they you know, my understanding is that when it comes to so Congress could pass an ethics code and I think it should. The court could, too. And and I it's my understanding that they need unanimity to do this. But John Roberts does care or professes to care about the credibility of the court. And this is something where his um, his name is going to be associated with this collapse in public trust for the court. I, I also go back to what I wrote about in the book about uh, what we learned about so many of the controversies in the court leading up to those rulings, you know, we had everything from the leak of the Dobbs opinion yeah. to the justices all attacking each other in public. And and the things we learned about Clarence Thomas and ethics rules a year ago, which is that his wife, Ginny Thomas, was deeply involved in the efforts to overturn the Constitution, to overturn the, the peaceful transfer of power, um, was at January at the rally of January 6th. I'm glad you brought that up because in some ways that seems more I mean, obviously, the ethical questions are important, but that conflict to me seems to go more fundamentally to questions of our democratic system in the fairness of the court. Yeah. And there was a case on it where um, during the very, very uh, important January 6th investigations by Congress with that committee that I thought did a tremendous job. uh, trying to get documents and there was a ruling from the court and it was eight to one and thomas was the only justice who voted against turning over the having the documents turned over right. and then it turns out the documents included these the evidence about his wife 
which he had to know. And he never said why he voted on it. He never said why he didn't recuse himself. And that's just uh, deeply, deeply troubling. I, I agree with you. And, you know, even looking at all of Donald Trump's many, many legal troubles, I, I think we as a society will really fail our constitution if we don't keep our eyes focused on the fact that there was a, a major threat to the constitutional order where there's not yet been full accountability. And this would be a good example. Yeah. And also, you know, I think you can see the same hubris in the way um, Judge Alito responded to that recent ProPublica article, not even <laughs> bothering to respond to them, but, you know, printing a response in the pages of the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Well, but also, you know, I, it might or might not be a good idea to take legal advice from Supreme Court justices. Definitely don't take crisis communications <laughs> advice. He drew so much more attention to that whole thing right. than he would have ever gotten. And his op-ed looked like nobody had read it. <laughs> I think published. more people have now clicked on the kind of process story ProPublica did about his response than they might have actually read the investigation <laughs> into what he did. Well, so. his, his response was, I could take these trips without disclosing them because this guy was a friend of mine. And then two paragraphs later, he said, but I could vote on the billion dollar cases he brought before the Supreme Court because... I know. I barely know. The I barely guy. know the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not going to try that one. <laughs> you. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in today for Mina Kim. We're talking with Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, about his new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. You know, another thing that struck me in the book was we kind of talked about how the Voting Rights Act was John Roberts' hobby horse. Can you briefly tell us about Neil Gorsuch and the Chevron Doctrine? This is a case not up this year, I think, but that might be coming before the court. And he's got a very personal interest in this. Um, a lot of this was news to me and kind of belies this idea again, that these are umpires calling balls and strikes that they have no personal stake in. So uh, Gorsuch is uh, the court's most, probably most intense um, backer of the idea that there need to be constitutional curbs on the role of government regulatory agencies, um, to the agencies that protect the environment and that sort of thing. And you're right, they took a case to, to consider a really important rule that they followed called the Chevron Doctrine. The Chevron Doctrine case goes back several decades to the 1980s at a time when um, Ronald Reagan had become president and was had installed very, very activist conservatives to run the EPA and other agencies. And the, the second highest ranking woman in the Reagan administration, a very, very prominent and controversial figure who kind of gutted the staffing of the agency and filled major jobs with polluters um, was a woman named Ann Gorsuch. And she had been a state legislator in Colorado. She was very charismatic. The Rocky Mountain News admiringly said that she could kill a grizzly bear by kicking it with its bare with her bare feet. Um, and she she was caught up in this this very significant controversy eventually was held in contempt of Congress by Congress and was was finally pushed out. And that's Neil Gorsuch's mother. And in her memoir from the time, she talks about her teenage son, Neil, saying, you know, mom, you raised me not to be a quitter. You know, why are you being a quitter? But his kind of very particular inside the Beltway origin story is the liberals were mean to his mother at, at the EPA. But so, you know, he's he's an intellectual. I think he's got a lot in some respects. He's got some interesting views um, but it's the same crusade as uh, uh, to take down the ability of government to do anything about the environment. Um, 
And now, uh, now you're seeing after decades in which there were attempts by business lobbyists and others to come up with a way to curb the power of regulatory agencies. Finally, this Supreme Court now and going forward are, are really are really going at it. And that is going to have a long, long lasting impact. You'll see many cases. It's not just going to be one at a time. Um, we've got a lot of comments. I think universally in favor of reform. Amy says yes on reforms. Yes on term limits. We need to institute standards for recusal, strict standards for disclosing, quote, gifts and for nominations. So oppositional leaders cannot block nominees such as McConnell's block of Merrick Garland months before the election. We should have been protesting on the streets nationwide on that one. And Paul says if SCOTUS were to treat the Second Amendment with true originalism, then the right to carry arms would be limited to muzzle loading flintlock. Flintlock weapons, those weapons the founders had in mind when the Constitution was written. Um, that makes me wonder, and I don't think we have time. We only have a few minutes before the end of the hour, but I've been thinking about like this question of, yeah, like it, there's a lot of interest on the right to protect the Second Amendment, but not seemingly as much to protect the First Amendment when we look at a lot of the conversation happening right now over censorship and books and things like that. But uh, Michael Waldman, I mean, you do have hope. I mean, you say, you know, you said earlier, the liberals need to fall out of love with the court. Um, but you talk about this history of overreach and backlashes. Is that what we're headed for? Are, are we in the middle of it now? Is this kind of the next era, the fourth chapter of that cycle? I, I think so. Um, I think we are in that period of backlash. At least there's certainly plenty of reason to think we are. When you look at the uh, number of states, including very conservative states that have passed ballot initiatives on abortion rights, and look at the midterm election, you know, it's sort of a law of political physics that the party of whoever the president is does badly in midterm elections. The Democrats had the best midterm in decades for a party in power, running in response to Dobbs um, and in dealing with worries about democracy. Um, and then I would say even and you're going to see this as a big issue in 2024. I would even say um, even more significant in some respects was the recent election in April in Wisconsin for the state Supreme Court. They they elect their state. They, they elect Supreme Court justices there like so many states do. It's an evenly divided state. Um, and that usually shows up in the races for judge. Uh, it went from evenly divided to an 11 point win for the more liberal candidate that political scientists will tell you that this doesn't happen. That That's really significant. So I think there are so many things we can do. We can have reforms of the Supreme Court. We should be asking politicians what their view is on, on the Constitution, on courts. There can be ballot measures. There can be laws passed by Congress, like the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore the full strength of the Voting Rights Act. There even should be uh, thought about constitutional amendments. For too long, people have been allergic to that. Yeah. Uh, it always seems impossible. This can be a time of great ferment, um, and it would not be out of keeping with the other periods when a response to a an extreme Supreme Court helped reshape politics and shape the country. We're going to leave it there. Michael Waldman is president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Check out his new book. Super fascinating. It's called The Su Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Michael, thanks for your time today. Thank you. That is going to do it. I'll be here all week for Mina Kim. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.